Hey, hey, welcome to this installment of Keeping Track. My guest today hails from Texas and through an eventful youth of working for Food Not Bombs in California, being a Spanish-English interpreter for touring punk rock bands in Mexico, and becoming interested in permaculture whilst working on a farm in Guatemala, she somehow ended up in Ireland and is now an honorary Corkonian, whether she likes it or not. She's one of the driving forces behind CUSP, the Cork Urban Soil Project, which is about composting on a community scale. She's also the co-owner, alongside her husband Donal, of the hugely popular raw vegan food company, My Goodness. My Goodness is much more than a vegan food stall, folks. Its ethos is founded on community, and it aims to constantly challenge the status quo around diets and how we get our food by showing that there's always a healthier, ethical, and more sustainable way to live. My Goodness have also been described as renegade producers that are a beacon of delicious, vibrant, and healthy food in Cork. She's an activist, a punk, an inspiring member of our community, and she's here today to tell us how she ended up in Ireland and to play some music that is special to her. It has to be, it can only be Virginia O'Gara. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Virginia. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me. Great. Do you want to um, give us your first tune while we uh, settle in and gather our thoughts? Man, well, this is a, a tune that I heard for the first time back in Austin, Texas. It's done by a couple of brothers that hail from Dublin, and I introduce to you Lynched Sign On.
So that was Pink Turds in Space with Indie Shit. Now, Pink Turds were one of the first Irish punk bands that I was able to hear, and I really, really loved their sound. And it was through punk rock that I learned about the, the troubles up north when I was a young teen in Texas. And um, as opposed to the name of the, the song is Indie Shit, so I guess that's the only sectarianism allowed in <laughs> punk rock is, is, are you a punker in indie? Yeah. And that's where the battles really happen. Then emo came, whoa. But uh, yeah, I really love what Pink Turds in Space were able to do to create an alternative community up north and a place where Catholics and Protestants could come together and create a uh, radical, fun, angry future for themselves through building community and through punk rock. Yeah. Did they, they were part of the Warzone Collective? They were a part of the Warzone Collective, which... Um, Man, stood the test of time. I'd say, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe it lasted for about 20 years, and it was a venue for punks to come together and DIY bands to play. It was a vegan restaurant. It was, you know, a social space. It was a place to have workshops, and it was a place to create the future that you wanted to see. So let's get stuck in. Okay. Can you tell us some of the highlights of how punk rock, activism, and permaculture led you to Cork? <laughs> The Holy Trinity. <laughs> That's a long story, Dave, and we're going to try to keep this show to an hour, y'all. <laughs> um, I grew up in Texas, and I grew up in Dallas, Texas. And, um, you know, when you grow up in a place and you think, maybe there's more to life than just this. I don't know if you have similar feelings growing up here in Cork yourself. But um, I saw a lot of um, injustices in society. I saw a lot of inequality. Um, poverty was surrounding me in East Dallas. And I knew there had to be a better way. So I wound up finding out about this group called Food Not Bombs. Now, Food Not Bombs is a grassroots organization that's been around for over 40 years that started in San Francisco and has spread around the world. Dublin has a Food Not Bombs sector, um, if you want to check them out. But uh, basically, it was a really simple, straightforward community grassroots movement where you wanted to put emphasis on protecting people by feeding them, thus the food, and maybe spend a little bit less money in America on war and killing people, thus the bombs. So Food Not Bombs does what it says on the tin. We would go around to various co-ops and restaurants and uh, vegetable distributors and get what was considered unsellable. Now, this traces back to a lot of different things. Some, you know, bananas that were just too big or some carrots that were just too crooked that were perfectly edible were deemed unsalable, so they would be thrown away to create a huge problem with food waste. Um, we were able to collect those things and make food out of God knows what every week to feed much uh, people in need in Dallas, Texas at the library. So sometimes you'd be making food out of like cantaloupes and eggplants. Sometimes you'd be making food out of, you know, 50 pounds of lentils. You never quite knew, but um, it was a great way to be introduced into using food as a tool for social justice and to learn creative techniques of cooking. So Food Not Bombs um, was fun, you know, and, and it built a lot of community. Everyone connects through food. Every human needs to eat. So that's always been one of my favorite ways to build community and, and to meet people and to serve the community. So in 1995, out in California, Food Not Bombs was um, being threatened. And the, way, the reason they were being threatened is that in 1995, the UN was having a big kind of um, celebration of 50 years of helping humanity. And the UN Plaza is right in the middle of San Francisco. So that's also where Food Not Bomb San Francisco feeds 200 people twice a day. Um, 
they were they were not allowed to feed people. All of a sudden, their license was revoked, and no one could figure out why until the international media started showing up, and we realized it was a bad look in the middle of UN Plaza to see so much poverty. So. Food Not Bombs, being a grassroots anarchist organization, decided to do what was right for its community and its people and kept on feeding. Mm. Um, and they began to be arrested. There was a whole series of anti-unhoused um, people laws that came into being called the Matrix Program, where if you looked homeless, if you looked crazy, if you had camping gear in public, you're able to be taken away and evaluated for 72 hours. And that was to help facilitate more international media being able to celebrate America for being a beacon of hope and democracy and for the UN to be there, you know, obviously succeeding and providing aid for all people. So food not bombs were getting arrested and the food not bombers that were the core of San Francisco needed help. So they made a call out to all of the chapters around America and we responded to the call. Well, I was 17 at the time. I had just graduated from high school and I had a couple of friends who were going on tour in a couple of different bands. There was one called Burden, maybe Bread and Water. I can't remember all of the folks that were going on tour, but myself and about 20 other Texans <laughs> jumped in a couple of bands and made our way across the Southwest up California, playing in garages and alleyways and you know people's mom's houses till we made it to San Francisco where we could then help the people serving food in Food Not Bombs and uh, kind of uh, relieve some of the, the people who were getting arrested. And that was the first time I racked up a couple of felonies. <laughs> well, that's a whole other story. Okay, so then how did you end up being an interpreter for bands in Mexico? How did I wind up being an interpreter for bands in Mexico? Yeah. Well, I guess after a couple of years of riding freight trains around America and working with Food Not Bombs in various chapters all over the States and being a grubby young activist, the Zapatista Revolution took place in Chiapas, Mexico and San Crisoba. And everything that they were doing was made sense to me. Um, it was a revolution of the people who were having their land taken away. It was the native Mayas who were fighting for the very right to exist. There was a big um, NATO highway being put through their land. And they said, enough is enough. We're going to stand up for our right to exist. We're going to stand up for the right to build a future we want to see. And um, they had a call to arms. And they were able to take over San Cristobal. Uh, I believe it was January 1st, 1994. And the way that they set up their revolution was uh, creative, peaceful, and hopeful, and inclusive, most importantly. Women, children, people of all abilities were invited to have a say in the way that decisions were made and creating the world that they wanted to see, because we know it's only through the ground up that we're going to have a sustainable society. And I wanted to learn from that. And I was a Texan. I knew how to use a gun. <laughs> I figured, you know, I was 18. I was ready to go down there and um, see what was going on. So I made my way down to Chiapas and quickly realized I was gonna be more of a liability than, <laughs> than an aide. But it was, it was nice to have you know, people who were white shields, basically, because you were less likely to get killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was more attention put onto various organizations and projects if there was a white kid involved, which is you know, often the case in life still, yeah. unfortunately. So um, I went down to Guatemala to learn Spanish first because I, I didn't even speak Spanish. And I was invited into a village to uh, and I didn't, you know, I was learning Spanish at this time, but the way that I understand it, the way that, that uh, this village was explained to me was, um, this is an ex-guerrilla village. Uh, Guatemala was um, growing out of a civil war that lasted about 36 years. So I was invited down to take place, um, to take part in a project that was like organic gardening, but a little bit different. And um, 
they thought I would like it. There was a recycling and composting project that was picking up in, back in California. I stayed in Berkeley and Oakland for a long time and worked for the University of California in a recycling and composting collective. So I had a bit of knowledge as yeah. a, you know, as a teenager about these things. And they said, well, sure, if you work in a garbage dump, we'll teach you Spanish. <laughs> I said, deal. So I went down to this village and that form of sustainable organic agriculture that they were practicing was called permacultura or permaculture. And permaculture, uh, for all of you that don't know, is the, it's kind of a, the philosophy of sustainable design using the patterns of nature. So you can apply this philosophy to anything from you know, planting a garden, to designing your kitchen, to um, structures within your community and how you like to see them function. And the motto of permaculture, which I use almost on the daily, is the problem is the solution. So it's, it's just a technique of learning how to see things and kind of flip them on their head and look at them in a different way to see if you can turn that, you know, would-be pollutant into a resource per se. So yeah, the, there was a guy named Ronnie Leck who lived there, and this was back in 96 at this point. Terminator Technology Seeds by Monsanto had just become a part of, I guess, the biotech um, plan. Their agenda was to start patenting things in nature and um, owning that patent and owning that part of nature and then creating their own version of it that could be owned um, including terminator seeds or seeds that wouldn't um, uh, replicate themselves. Mm -hmm. Ronnie Luck had the foresight to see that as a problem and started collecting all of the native Maya seeds. Um, Monsanto is, uh, as we all know, a terrible company and have since um, ruined some farmers' lives through terminator seed technology. But luckily, I think that um, through grassroots actions like Proyecto Ijats, um, people have been able to organize to save native seeds, and we will always have that. So, yeah, I wound up living there for a good couple of years on the side of a volcano with um, some beautiful Mayas, and they taught me beekeeping as a trade. More than that, they taught me about um, interconnectivity and interdependency and how communities work together um, from the ground up. And I was really lucky to stay there. And I probably would have stayed there all of my life had my my family not needed me back in Texas. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I might have jumped a gun. So you would have done that before you became an interpreter for the punk rock band. Sure. That's how I that's how I learned Spanish. I learned Spanish from a bunch of farmers in Guatemala who spoke Cactiquel as their first language and then Spanish as their second. So yeah. <laughs> after a couple of years in Guatemala, I wound up um, traveling north back up to Texas uh, to see my brother. And while I was in Mexico City on my way back to Texas, um, the students were having a revolution. And the um, NATO were down there, and the IMF were trying to figure out how to uh, help Mexico repay their debt to them. <laughs> and the easiest way to repay a debt uh, is by harassing those who have the least, I guess, and, and trying to extract it from those who have little defense. So they were going to healthcare. They were trying to make a public healthcare system privatized. And of course they went to education. Um, the students in Mexico City revolted and they said, no, education should be a right, not a privilege. So they decided to shut down their university and turn it into their own people's university. So hundreds of thousands of students and faculty members got together and shut down the walls and only allowed in um, students and people who are ready to learn. So they had their own classes. It was a beautiful place for the time that it lasted. Um, there were you know, classes on 
uh, herbal medicine or, you know, community education and Food Not Bombs was, of course, there feeding people. So I was able to plug right in. I also worked as an interpreter for various um, forms of press that were present at consensus meetings that were taking place with 600 plus people all around collectively deciding how they wanted to see their particular student revolts take place. It was incredible. Mm. Um, it ended well, you know, the tuition fee is still very, very low. And that was a success, but also people were arrested and some people died. Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it was, uh, it was a beautiful thing to witness and a beautiful thing to help participate in for a little bit in my small yeah. way. Um, and after that I, I went back to America, I was arrested and, um, questioned and I had, you know, my plane tickets canceled and I had all the threats in the world about living in prison forever for, you know, being an insurgent anarchist. Um, they realized that was just foolish. I was merely translating and, you know, observing. Yeah. So I was happy to get out of Mexico city and I made it back to Texas. Yeah. For my 21st birthday and yeah. to be with my brother who needed me at the time. And that was wonderful. And so I had about a week and a half back in Texas and I got a phone call <laughs> from a band in Arkansas who were on their way down to Mexico to go on tour. Bands are so needy, aren't they? I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I was like, come on, white boys, learn some Spanish. Give I did it. Yeah. <laughs> I just narrowly escaped prison. Yeah. I did not want to have to go back to Mexico. And so, of course, I said no. I said no at least 15 times. Yeah. And uh, they kept on calling. And they were so persistent. They were able to convince me to go back down on tour in Mexico. And thank God I did. Yeah. <laughs> not only because it wound up being a really fun time, but also because they would have been screwed. I mean, no one had done this before. What really hooked me into going on tour with this particular band is that they were going with the intention of creating community. This band was going on tour with two other bands from Mexico, from Guadalajara, and they were going to be able to spread um, information about the Zapatista movement, um, the building of community, creating, um, creating a governance that's decided by the people and for the people, and also play some righteous tunes. Yeah. So I said, yeah. And we went down there and we were pulled over constantly, had the vans searched. We had, you know, 12 year olds with AK-47s pointing at our heads because we were at war yeah. and that was the way it was. Um, but you know, I wouldn't have traded it for the world. And we were able to start to figure out the method of bringing people from North America down to Mexico and into Central America even and meet the right people, create community. And what I really loved is that everyone had to participate to create that, that scene. You had grandmas at the door taking money. You had, you know, ska bands playing with metal bands. That'd be unheard of here. You know, you had <laughs> hardcore and punk rock. You know, women were playing a big part of it. The feminist movement was huge. Everyone had a zine. Everyone was interviewing each other and talking about cool projects they were working on and other projects they wanted to work on or epic failures they had and teaching us all not what, what not to do as well. And you'd have the fest would be an all day event. You'd have art, you'd have people making jewelry out of, you know, random bits of bicycle tubes. You'd have uh, lots of food. And then at the end of the day, everyone would just sleep on the floor. It was punk rock in its essence. It was community. It was radical. It was angry. It was fun. It was hilarious. And it was delicious. Yeah, it was yeah. everything you want in a scene. How many bands do you think you went to? Oh my God, so many. I was trying to think of that the other day. I went on tour. Jesus, um, like two or three times a year sometimes. Yeah. Luckily, I was running a landscaping company in Texas in at Texas this time, so I, I could go down to Mexico pretty frequently. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I went with a lot of bands from all over the world. Is that how you uh, met the Lynch Brothers? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Lynch Brothers, they were, so I wound up 
getting a call from somebody I knew from some squat in Barcelona. And um, he knew that I had a lot of contacts in Mexico. And he said, I'm taking this trad Irish band around to Mexico. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. So I gave him some contacts. And on the way back up in Austin, I would often do shows for bands on tour. So these guys showed up late at night and um, they had these crazy instruments that I had never seen, like a little mini bagpipes. And I was like, what is that? It's a... And he said, oh, it's an Illin pipe. And he was playing, you know, like Iron Maiden and this little <laughs> thing that he was squeezing with his sh- with his elbow. And his brother Dara was playing guitar. Like, I mean, and they had the most beautiful voices, the most beautiful harmonies. And they were hilarious. Uh, the Lynch brothers wound up staying with me for a good week or two, you know, shooting guns and riding on oil derricks and canoeing around Austin, Texas. We had about four shows in one day at record stores and on a bridge and in a pub and in, you know, in a person's house. It was fantastic. And they played the most beautiful songs with the most beautiful harmonies. My favorite song was Sign On. I thought, God, the melodies are beautiful. These guys are really talented. This is a great song. <laughs> and when I first, then when I moved to Ireland in 2006 to go to permaculture school, um, so I knew these guys and I knew a few other lads from Warzone. I knew Helen Skullduggery from, you know, various contacts we had through the punk rock community. And I remember being in a pub, having a pint and Sign On came on on the radio and I thought, oh my God, they're playing lynched on the radio. This is amazing. This Wait, that's not, somebody's covering, <laughs> somebody's covering Sign On. What the hell is this? And I was, of course, like everyone laughed at me forever. I didn't know who Christy Moore was. I didn't know Right On was a thing. (laughs) Anyway, it's rumored. Well, Christy Moore does like the song Sign On, and he has since done some project with the Lynch Brothers because they're fantastic. So it was permaculture that led you to Kinsale, led you to Ireland, really? It was a combination of permaculture and wanting to get the hell out of America that led me to Cork originally. Kinsale was the only place in the world that had a two-year program specifically dedicated to um, permaculture and uh, green building and growing a market garden. So yeah, it was great. They had a three-year waiting list at the time. And I I got a job in Maui in Hawaii and I received a call while I was there from Margaret Thulier from Kinsale Further Education College. And she said, hey, Virginia, if you want to come a little bit early, you can you can come to college. And I wanted to finish out my contract in Maui first. So I said, cool, I'm in Hawaii, but I'll head to Cork as soon as I possibly can. Yeah. And I'm so glad I did. Okay, give us a tune. All right. This next one we're going to listen to. <laughs> this is a good one. It's a band called Bambi. Now, <laughs> the reason I'm picking a lot of these tunes is because uh, the people who play this music are dear to my heart. And Bambi were a fantastic punk band from Ireland back in the day. And I wanted to kind of honor the echoes of, you know, the past DIY and punk bands that kind of laid the foundation for a lot of the creativity that we have today in Ireland. And um, the drummer of this band is a dear, dear friend of mine. His name is William Stewart. And that guy wound up touring the States. Bambi toured the States. I don't even know if they ever made it to Cork, did they? I don't know. I just remember them being quite mythical because, um, my brother's band would have supported them, I think, in 1996 or something, maybe 95, 96 in Dublin. Wow. And I remember my brother coming home and I was, I don't know, I was like 14 and going, how was the gig? And he was like, oh, it was crap, but the band we played with were amazing. <laughs> uh, he was really, really enamoured with them, you know. But I never heard of him again. And, and I'm really surprised then when you gave me the list of tunes that Bambi were on it. Oh, man, they yeah. have to be on it. Bambi has to be on it. I don't think they ever came down here. I'm not sure. Well... For the first time ever in Cork, ladies and gentlemen, here is Bambi. (laughs) 
so that seamless exchange of songs <laughs> went from super tease to the cracking of the limbs with woven skull and the reason why I'm, I'm glad you decided to play these back to back is that the drummer from bambi is also the drummer in woven skull and he's paired up with the force of nature which is natalia Bayless. and I got the chance to meet both Willie and Natalia in Austin, Texas, God, I guess about 22 years ago. We still have a photograph of the first time we ever met when I gave them a free canoe uh, from the canoe rental where I was working at Zilker Park Boats, and we have forever been friends. So some of the first people I knew before ever moving here were are still good friends of mine and doing incredible things, and I feel very privileged to know them. So through punk rock, really, you had a community here, even though it was, might have been spread out across Ireland. It wasn't like you didn't know anybody. Yeah. Yeah, so you had friends in the north and mm-hmm. in Dublin. We had friends in the north, friends in Dublin. Um, I think the first few months, a few, first few weeks after I arrived, there was a big festival called GGI, which is uh, Glasgow, Groningen, and Ireland. And these punk rock bands from these three different cities get together, well, two different cities and a country get together and they kind of trade off and um, having nice little DIY festivals. When I say nice little, I mean, they're disgusting, (laughs) (laughs) but they're fun. And I got to meet a, a, a whole lot of other people, but it was definitely punk rock and DIY communities and creating DIY spaces that allowed me to, um, come here and, and uh, yeah. plug in. You're in Kinsale now and you're in the permaculture course. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a two-year course? It was a two-year course. After that course, we started a project called Education for Sustainability, where we noticed that there was a problem. Um, people were coming into Ireland without having English as a first language. And in schools, there wasn't really necessarily a lot of um, resources for those kids. So as a college project, myself and a few other permaculturists, started this group and created syllabus where we were learning all of our maths through building raised beds. And we were learning our English through um, writing garden journals. And we were learning science and um, eliminating variables through growing potatoes in different ways. And we it was a year-long program where we were able to work with kids of various abilities with various languages who all used food, uh, using food again as a way to create community and connection. So we would have the entire school year of minding the vegetables and building the garden. Uh, We called it an outdoor classroom. And then come September, when everyone was coming back together, we'd do a big harvest and teach them cooking skills and create a big soup and baked bread. And all of the families from various countries would come together. And it was one of the most beautiful projects I got to work on here in Ireland and the reason I stayed. Um, And I still have kids sometimes coming up to me saying, you're the lady who made us eat the flowers. (laughs) Yeah, so it was a really great way to be able again to plug into community and plug into towns yeah, yeah. Um, so let's talk about my goodness so um, right. for me it feels like your business my goodness is run like a co-op mm-hmm. um, from the outside it seems like there's much more going on than just selling vegan food so like what is my goodness to you my goodness um, well my goodness has become a large part of everything that I do and um, most things that I do are inspired by it and for it so my goodness is I keep forgetting it's, it is actually just a food company, <laughs> but in reality, we weren't willing to have a food company that existed like normal food companies. I never wanted to start a food business. I never wanted to have a cafe because in order to turn a profit with food companies or even food production companies, you're encouraged to uh, create a large margin and you create a large margin through uh, exploitation, really. You exploit exploit resources of the earth, you exploit people who work with you, um, you exploit your customers who are shopping with you to be able to earn more profit. Well, I I wasn't interested in that. And um, anyone who's ever worked in the service industry, anyone who's ever made food know that you work long, hard hours. uh, And if we're going to do that, 
if I'm going to do that, I want to believe in everything that I'm doing. So we created my goodness with a foundation of ethics of respect for the earth, respect for people and respect for animals. And really, we just try to eliminate exploitation everywhere that we can. So it's hard to make that equation balance. It's hard to, one, pay ourselves a living wage or even more than that because we deserve it. Two, um, not overcharge our customers because we want to be able to feed good food to people who are not rich. We want everyone to be able to afford our food. Good food should be a right and not a privilege. And three, we want to be able to pay the workers who are growing our food and the farmers who are growing our food a fair wage to honor them for all of the work that they put into creating a delicious and sustainable county cork. So often what we wind up doing is just working too much. My goodness is not a co-op. We're a limited company, but we started wanting to be a collective and it just hasn't worked out yet, but I still have hope that the people who work in my goodness buy my goodness and we can continue to provide the service that we do to the community around us. We also created my goodness with a zero waste ethos. So we don't want to waste anything. You know, we have bottles that are refillable. They're champagne grade glass that we get in from Germany. And it's such a beautiful piece of material. There's so much embodied energy that goes into it. We want to be able to not just use it once. The concept of single use anything is something of the past. This is not the way that we're going to have a future. So of course, everything that we have is refillable. Now that eliminates us from being able to trade with a lot of the multiples. Um, like Super Value, for instance, or Musgraves or Tesco, because we won't trade with anyone who won't take our bottles and our jars for sauerkraut um, and collect them for a deposit. However, it's been able to, or we've been able to create a really good sustainable community amongst independent health food shops all over Ireland. And that is more our vibe. Yeah. So, you know, working with Hopsack, working with the Dublin Food Co-op, of course, the Key Co-op were our first champions. Um, we started as a cafe in their old place, the Gay Disco, the other place. That's where my goodness began uh, 10 years ago now. Um, yeah, so having strong ethics helps bring together a really resilient community who also share those ethics. And just taking a stand and saying, this is what this is who we are, this is what we believe in, and this is how we're going to um, enforce this, our beliefs, um, has allowed us to really fit in well with the people we want to fit in with. Yeah. yeah. How hard is it to run a business that built on an ethos of, of equality at a time where the effects of neoliberalism policies and capitalism are more apparent than ever, you know, cost of living and mm-hmm. housing emergency? Well, I guess I'm glad that I grew up punk <laughs> because um, we can create our own world. Yeah, it is hard. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, you know, the housing crisis is a huge problem. The cost of living is exceptional. We've even had to put up our prices for our food and it, it breaks my freaking heart. Mm-hmm. But um, I believe that we will make it through. Um, Having a zero waste ethos at this point really does help with that. Um, We are not allowed to create new products, and my goodness, without having uh, the byproduct of another process used within it. So also, we decided to make our main product out of rainwater. The cost of rainwater doesn't ever really change in Ireland. It's it's almost guaranteed to always be falling from the sky. So we make all of our kefir and kombucha out of rainwater. It's a product that's fermented, filtered and fermented. And anecdotally, we get customers every day coming up to us, thanking us for doing what we do. And I think that because we are sticking to our guns and running the sustainable business, we're creating, we're generating a whole other economy of hope and positivity. We get thanked by people at every single farmer's market, at the English market where we are in city center. 
moms, dads, children, teens, people who, you know, have look at the world around them and see that it's a disaster and that we're not necessarily uh, choosing a lot of options to have a sustainable future, a balanced future, a future of equality. They look at tiny little things we're doing in a tiny little food company and they get, you know, even just a spark of hope. They know that we care. They know that we're going to keep trying no matter what. So, yeah, I think you know, being able to say no to the multiples from the very beginning that we are not going to use plastic in our products. We are not going to build a company that is solely focused on export. We're going to focus on the needs of ourselves, on our immediate community, and then Ireland at the biggest. We are building our community, not exponentially, like capitalism expects you to grow. There is nothing that expands exponentially aside from just the universe itself, maybe. <laughs> you know, our resources are limited and we have far overused and overtaxed the earth for so many resources. We have to find another way. And I truly believe that our business model is far more sustainable than many of the other companies that you see going out of business right now. Absolutely. Okay. There's a lot to chew over there. Let's take another tune. <laughs> All right. This next tune is by one of my favorite people in this fine city of Cork. It is Elaine Malone with Nothing Is Real. Now, I feel very lucky to have worked with this woman for a good couple of years um, and watched her continue to grow from strength to strength. Maybe her talent expands exponentially. Maybe that's the only exponential <laughs> growth is the talent of Elaine Malone. Here is Nothing Is Real.
So you just listened to Kimchi by Percolator. Percolator now are a great band originally from Waterford. So yeah, they're mm. they're Munster. We can claim them, yeah. right? Um, man, they have one of my very favorite drummers. Ellie is incredible. Um, and we share a fondness for Kimchi. So that's why I wanted to play that song. And shout out to Ellie. Brilliant. Um, okay, can we talk about the vegan diet for just a bit? Let's. Um, because I think people listening will be curious about it. Okay. And maybe you could highlight that it's not just about animals, yeah. but equally about human rights issues and environmental emergencies. Yeah, it's good that you bring that up. Um, yeah, it's it, yeah, vegan diet is more than just, you know, beige on a plate. Vegan diet is more than just, you know, um, I care about animals. Um, yeah, the vegan diet, I guess for me, started off for an ethical reasons because I, I, I do love animals and I had a hard time separating my love for my, my pet dog from... Um, my distance from a cow. I just, from a young age, when I was 12, I went vegetarian. When I was 16, I went vegan. Um, and I guess going vegan, uh, changed the way that I felt physically. I, I felt a lot more healthy when I was uh, paying attention to the food that I was eating. And I guess you were talking about the tax that it has on the environment. Sure. I'm from Texas. Texas is basically the, <laughs> the cork of America. We have a lot of, uh, cows, we have a lot of agricultural industry. And as we know about capitalism, you try to um, extract as much as you can for as cheaply as possible. So I grew up around a lot of cows living in really awful situations that were being force fed corn and other things and their byproducts, their urine and their uh, manure were uh, affecting our aquifer systems and polluting our water and polluting the airways. And it seemed awful. And then when you dig deeper into it, yeah, the, the animals were in a lot of pain and you could hear them being in pain. So as a kid, it just didn't make any sense to me. And, and as a 45 year old woman now, it still doesn't make any sense to me. So then you have to look at how capitalism is exploiting the people who work within those factories. Um, they're working for almost nothing uh, in Texas. It's a border state. We get a lot of people from Mexico and uh, Central America over to do jobs that no one else wants to do, like work in those awful freaking factories. I think the same is true here in, in Ireland. I think there have been a couple of scandals in Clonakilty and elsewhere with workers' rights being um, an issue in these meatpacking factories. So it's, it seems like it's, a, it's an industry that doesn't really care about the animals, uh, both human and not. We use up a lot of land for growing animal flesh. Often you'll hear people who don't appreciate veganism or, you know, will speak out against the growing of soybeans when really, you know, so much of our land is taken up growing soybeans and there aren't that many vegans on this planet. The, the truth is that 80% of the soybeans that are grown on this planet are grown for cows. So cows eat those soybeans and they bulk up. Cows are big old strong creatures that are vegans. They only eat, drink milk from their own animal. Um, so yeah, they eat a lot of grass, they eat a lot of soy, they eat a lot of corn, and um, they produce flesh. So on the land that we could actually grow vegetables for humans, we have to grow them for animals. And it's just not a very pragmatic or practical way to produce protein or food for our people. Um, but it, it does seem to be um, a topic that makes a lot of people who aren't vegan very, very angry. And soil loss is... You're gonna hear a lot more about how this is one of the main problems that we suffer from as a globe soon. I think it's, if we continue um, the agricultural system as it is now, by 2050, we won't have any topsoil left. And when we don't have any topsoil, we can't grow any grass for those cows that are eating all of the grass, which is the main defense of eating meat in Ireland for most farmers. Yeah. Ours are just grass fed. 
Um, yeah, so I, you know, a lot of people think they can't exist without meat. I've, I, I can, if I can do it, probably anyone can, <laughs> I'm guessing. <laughs> okay, so while, we're, while you were talking about soil there, it might be a good link to um, CUSP, the uh, Cork Urban Soil Project. Um, how did it come about and what benefits have come from it? Yeah, the Cork Urban Soil Project has been a really, really fun project. Um, it started in 2017, actually by Wayne Dunley and Jack Crotty. And these guys were working with a project called Food on Board in Body and Soul. And the concept is really simple. Like most things that are going to work, uh, the concept is simple. So it was an area that was set up within Body and Soul that was against all of the waste that you see at a lot of festivals. So it was a plastic-free area where you could come in and be fed from one of a few different food companies, like there are ourselves, the Market Garden, who are um, Sarah who works in a 25-acre organic farm just outside of Dublin, one of the oldest organic farms in all of Ireland. There was Katie Sanderson from White Masu. And we all had our little stalls, and, and people would come up. They would, we'd have boards on our stalls, so people weren't using disposable takeaway. Um, we'd serve them their food. They'd eat their food. If they had any food waste, they had to go and compost it into a biodigester. And then we made some kind of weird sludge from that biodigester um, just to show that you could have a circular waste system. So we figured if we could do this in a little muddy field in the middle of a festival, why in the, you know, BF Nowhere, Ireland, why can't we do that in Cork amongst people we know and trust? So that's where the concept began. And what CUSP is, is a project that is creating community through compost. So we were given a circular economy grant scheme um, two years ago. And the reason that the Department of the Environment entrusted us with this money is because we had a view of trying to use what is considered waste or use what is considered a, a pollutant and turn it into a valuable resource. So as our food company, my goodness, you know, we try to be zero waste, but we were still tossing away tons of scraps of vegetables and cardboard to go equipment. And we thought, this is ridiculous. It's not good enough. We worked too hard to be able to be taking this would-be valuable resource and sending it into the Midlands somewhere. Who knows what happens to that waste? Yeah. It's actually creating a huge problem. You have to have this food waste that gets picked up by a truck and then taken away using petrochemicals to drive it to God knows where, where it's going to sit and release methane and be a problem. When really all that is is nitrogen. That is nitrogen and carbon that can be broken down to make the stuff that we grow food in. So we, we got really lucky. Everything I'm talking about is usually by good usually is achieved by good intentions and a lot of luck. My friend Patricia, who worked at CIT, now MTU, had a biodigester and they couldn't get it to work. But I knew that we could. Um, it was bought for them by the Clean Technology Center. And these guys were saying, no, biodigesters are not the way. These will never work. But it's just an auger. It was this amazing machine that was sitting there. We got a crane. We moved it over to the Marina Commercial Park where we have our kitchen and where Rebel Reads is. And we knew there was a good community that would, would pitch in mm. to make this thing work. So we just observed this machine. And it's an aerobic biodigester that's made in Sweden called Joraform. And this tiny, well, smallish stainless steel tube could actually deal with the food waste for 100 families in apartments. So all it does is you put in your cardboard or your beer mats is what we're using right now and food scraps and it turns it around, it undulates this, these food scraps for like two weeks 
and then like a ruminant species animal just shoves it over to the other chamber where it just kind of mixes around for another two weeks. And then at the end of that month total, you have this beautiful, brown, friable, gorgeous compost. So in one year, we managed to divert eight, 19 tons of would-be waste, and we turned it into about eight and a half tons of compost. And we're now using that compost to grow a lot of the food that we serve at my goodness. We have all of our kales. We're growing experimental crops um, to try to encourage various farmers we work with to try out new crops like daikon radishes and waxy types of potatoes that we use to make our cheese. So yeah, that's what the Cork Urban Soil Project does. And um, this year we're looking to expand in a way to have a compost club because Everyone, especially parents, especially kids who have to live on this planet in the future, long past 2050, are looking for solutions. They're looking for ways to assure that they will be able to live the quality of life that they can, the best quality of life that they possibly can, um, and have that right and that opportunity just to exist. So, yeah, the Cork Urban Soil Project had a great first year where in our second official year, um, I guess we won a the best project in Munster from the Social Enterprise Awards. Yeah, we've we've gotten some recognition, and it's it's like I said. I think you know if we can do it, anyone can do it. We're not rocket scientists. This is just a group of people who care about creating a future that's sustainable, that's green, and that's delicious. That's it's that simple, really. Yeah. So yeah, check out. We are the Urban Soil Project on Instagram. Okay, and we have a good website too. Let's take another tune. Okay. So I guess in the spirit of CUSP, creating a more green city, we hope to be able to uh, kind of expand out. We're in the English market now, and we'd love to see a circular waste system happen within the English market. So we want to be able to have these amazing modular grow boxes that we've created outside of our kitchen. We have 20 of them now, growing a large portion of the food that we use, and my goodness. And if we can do that there, imagine all of these disused spaces around Cork City where we could have a green heart of the center, where people who live in city center, which you know more and more of our world's population is urban now, we deserve the right to have delicious food. We deserve the right to be able to encourage nature and enjoy pollinator species growing all around us. So all of these glass buildings that are shooting up who may or may not exist past the next, you know, soon to be economic decline, wouldn't it be great if we had some way to have these modular temporary spaces that were there to support the community who lived in the area and the wildlife who live in the area, all communities of all species. And uh, there's really no reason not to. So anyway, this next tune is called Our City and it's by a band that I really love called Extra Vision. They're incredible people of all genders who uh, enjoy playing punk rock.
That was Our City by ExtraVision, and that was picked by Virginia O'Gara, my guest today. Uh, Virginia, we've come to the end. We have one more question. Uh, it's fair to say you're an involved activist, right? Um, what are the most worrying concerns you're seeing cropping up at the moment in the community? For instance, the public library on Grand Parade has received a lot of threatening behaviour from a certain group who want LGBTQ books removed from the shelves and the anti-immigration marches. How important is it to you to make sure these don't go ignored? Oh man, isn't it ridiculous? Mm. It is ridiculous to see these like supposed nationalists using all of these American right-wing strategies to try to enforce uh, what? I mean, it's, I thought, I remember during lockdown, a lot of these groups were, you know, purporting that they wanted to defend free speech. And that's why, you know, they were preaching against whatever it was they were preaching against at the time. And now they're actually going forward to prevent free speech amongst the public library. This is a sanctuary. Yeah, I think it is really worrying that you see these, you know, white guys going into a library to harass civil servants and scare children. They're the biggest threat to children. Um, it makes no sense to me. Uh, so I don't think that is going to pass in Cork. I think that we've seen in, in past demonstrations with gatherings of, of actual Corkonian citizens coming together to create a spirit of welcoming and positivity and inclusion. Because, you know, as, as an outsider, as an immigrant, as somebody who has this ridiculous accent because my ancestors <laughs> came from Ireland and they needed to flee because of war and economic depression. They went and, and they moved to America and tried to make a life for themselves. And I think that anyone who comes here is, is doing that very thing. No one really wants to leave their home unless you have no other choice. And Cork um, is one of the best places to come. And it has been so welcoming to me and I want to continue that trend. And I want to create a community and an atmosphere that allows people to know that Cork is for everyone. Cork is for all. And I look forward to seeing more organizations forming to support immigrants and to support the most marginalized communities, support people um, escaping war. And I think one of the scariest concepts, aside from you know the earth burning right now um, and being on fire, is that we're going to raise a future if we don't fight against this right-wing fascist dribble that's, that's seeping into our city. The next generation are going to have far fewer rights than we are able to enjoy right now. I want people to be out and proud. I want people to be able to love whoever they love. I want people to be able to live in a world where they feel supported, um, where you know you can connect with your neighbor, no matter what your religion is, no matter what your beliefs are, your skin color, your heritage. It's that diversity that builds a beautiful, sustainable place to live full of different flavors and colors and sounds. Like what, I, I just don't get these. I've been to a couple of the demos against the, um, or counter protests to the far right who are organizing anti-immigration marches. And it's just a bunch of white guys and ties, like the National Party just looking pretty pathetic. They're good on the YouTube scene, but um, in real life, I see more of Corkonians supporting uh, equality and diversity. That's how we're gonna have a sustainable community. Um, it's a diversion. I think that it's unfortunate that we are blaming our housing crisis on immigrants um, because the housing crisis is a problem be that our government needs to deal with and capitalism is the root of it. Um, we need to not blame marginalized communities. We need to see their smokescreen for what it is. And um, the right-wing movement is based on, is fueled by hate and fear 
And uh, I think that we can address those issues of, of fear, especially by letting people know that it's through inclusion, interconnectivity, and community that we can build a better future. Here, here. Have you considered running for a local election? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, we have people like Holly Kearns who are doing a great job. Um, I yeah. am an anarchist and I do believe in direct democracy, but I think I would rather vote for you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, let's hear your last tune for today. All right, so this next song is called Demo 23. I don't know if this has yet been played on the airwaves. Ooh. It's by a band called Snake, and they are super queer, radical, amazing folks. Um, shout out to Karen and Legs especially. Karen, who is the vocals on this band, has a great show called uh, Cosmetic Plague on DDR, so you might want to check her out. So yeah, take it away. Here's a treat for your ear holes. <laughs> Tune in to Keeping Track every Thursday at midday on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is a music and interview program hosted by Dave Hackett. I play alternative music based on a theme and I interview people from all different backgrounds in our community to talk about what it is they do and to play the music that inspires them. Listen back to previous interviews and playlists on my SoundCloud page or on the station's podcast channel on Spotify. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Keeping track every Thursday from 12 to 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM.